hell real soon It will appear to me as this room And for eternity I'd lay in bed In my boxers half stone with the pillow under my head Art isn't a surface activity It comes from a deep place and it meets the wound we each carry so wrote novelist Jeanette Winterson in a recent Wall Street Journal story called In Praise of the Crack-Up. Can artists be, well, artistic enough without having suffered or to be suffering through those stages of darkness, pain, and sickness? Well, 25-year-old Los Angeles native Max Bemis, lead singer for the band Say Anything, would probably agree that one can't. My disease is part of my genetic code, he said. It's woven into who I am, and thus, if I wasn't bipolar, who knows if I would have amassed the experiences that inspire me to be a musician. Began in 2000 with drummer Kobe Linder, Say Anything, through three official releases and one debut they'd rather just forget about, have become a must-see, must-hear, and must-like band for those who enjoyed a bit of sarcasm and irony in their morning music. The band signed to Doghouse Records in 2002 after producing their own record, a now much requested but mostly ignored by the band release called Baseball, an album by Say Anything. Their breakout record, 2004's Is a Real Boy, produced the now seen iconic hits Alive with the Glory of Love, Wow, I Can Get Sexual Too, Whoa, and the mostly confused, even by me, slam dunk statement song, Admit It. 2007 saw the band go for the Dukes of Hazard jump over the ravine with the two desks set in defense of the genre, featuring almost two dozen guest appearances, including from Pete Yorn, Gerard Way, Haley Williams, Matt Skiba, Anthony Green, and saves the day's Chris Connolly, whom he would later collaborate with on their 2008 project called Two Tongues. The six-piece act literally just released their latest effort, the self-titled Say Anything, this past week, after what has turned out to be a rather tumultuous past couple of years. Bemis' struggle with his bipolar condition nearly disintegrated himself as well as the band, at one point with him ending up on the streets of New York spitting on people in sidewalk cafes. From the years 2003 to 2007, the band played hit pause, played again, and then hit pause again as Bemis jumped back and forth between ignoring or abusing his illness. It finally ended with his parents checking him into the Houston-based Menninger Health Clinic to get placed on the right medication and pointed in the right state of mind. Today, he's detoxed himself of substances that were agitating his condition, brought on new management, and added new members after several quit in 2005 during one of the band's pauses. Oh, and he's happily married to Sherry Dupree, whose own act, Isley, can currently be seen opening for Say Anything on tour. Ever so conscious to do things their own way, and to never be concerned with someone accusing them of selling out, Say Anything see themselves on that board game of life on a newly created spot called Going Forward. As Blink-182 frontman Tom DeLonge said to Bemis in an AP interview in the summer of 2008, quote, I think as a frontman, you're unpredictable. You've got this element of humor, but you've also got this element of fuck you. Now, if you were a lead singer, which would you rather be known for? That or being on some American Idol tour? This is my shit. Graduates feel childish when they laugh at it. Climb the rungs to kingdom come. Sour patch to acid tongue. Are you opposed to having fun? You clench the world between your buns. You could do better. You could do better.
Actually, one of the things that I, um, it was in Trevor Kelly's cover story. Yes. And, um, and I have not, doing 36 hours of research on you, I have not found this anywhere yes. else. Okay. Even, specifically the obvious places where you would think there was, there was to be at. But in the story, it talks about your dad, uh-huh. uh, is, was, still is? Is graphic designer is a graphic. Designer. Yeah, he actually. Um, and he did movie posters. He works at a firm that makes movie posters. He started out as graphic designer, and now he runs the the company. Wow, well, good for yeah. him. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So in the story, it talks about you kind of walking down the hallway of your parents' house, and there's the Raising Arizona poster there. Yeah, and the movie had they say that the movie had 15 different babies used. Yes, and but the baby that's in the poster yes. is you. The baby that's in this particular poster, which so was, this main one that is not me. All right, so the main poster. So which poster is it? That's you. There's a poster with the baby uh, bent over, looking looking in between his, his legs, legs. right? Which me. they think that they use that overseas. I saw that, that in a is, Japanese version. Yes, that's me. That is you. Yes, <laughs> that's my butt, at least. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't your face. I think it's my face, but. I've heard both things. I've heard both things from my dad. I don't think he remembers if it was my face or if it was like the glued it. I don't know. I have no idea. Your mom wouldn't be able to tell. Like, I, I think I think I've heard both because I've seen <laughs> the little like Polaroid. It looks a lot like me, right? But I can't. I can't tell. I don't. Remember. I haven't even asked about it in a while either. So. <laughs> well, now, now now there's going to be a bunch of people running around the internet trying to to, yeah. to confirm that or not. Yes. Um. So it's usually. Um. I mean, you kept it in the in the family biz, obviously staying in the entertainment industry. So, is yes. there any part of you that, I guess you know, it, there was a, the other thing saying that you had a bit part in Face Off. Oh yeah, I was I was literally an extra. I wouldn't even call it a bit part. I mean, it came from. I mean, yeah, that does speak to how I grew up, where it was that in chorus class, we got a little slip that said, you know, if you, you know, we're going to be in a movie in a couple of weeks, you know what I mean? Um, and then we were, um, and this was not like an uncommon type of a thing, but it had nothing to do with me. <laughs> like I never had any real substantial role. It in... wasn't your dad pulling strings. No, no, so, it was through it, my, it. my chorus. And the, the only stuff that I, that happened through my dad was just me being, growing up in in an environment that was cultivated by the entertainment industry yeah. and the kids i grew up with and the the importance of movies and entertainment and me being really like uh you know it's like being raised in a bubble but by really good parents i mean my parents were really cool but it's it's a totally weird place to grow up LA and especially if your parents are in the entertainment industry so there were certain things i experienced growing up that people uh wouldn't have who haven't had that same experience did you know that usually like um sometimes music fans will talk about like where they finally meet their idol mm-hmm. and their idol doesn't live up to this huge expectations they're kind of let down so yeah. is there and there are some people that i know in la that have been around the industry so long even they're not living in the industry but they're just around so many industry people yeah. there's a cynicism that kicks in oh, and God. they have a hard yeah. time appreciating the magic of art anymore of anything yeah yeah so if if you do you feel like you were any part of that or do you kind of feel like you were luckily i don't know about insulated but you kind of got out of that by going to music so you didn't turn into that person to be honest my my draw to begin making music and and to be in a whatever degree of a punk band that say anything is or has been from the beginning 
uh, was fueled by what you're talking about right there because the jadedness of kids that I grew up with when I was like 15 years old about the world, about love, about um, like you said, the entertainment industry itself was so strong and it was such a depressing, although on the surface, everything's really pretty, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you want, you know, you watch an episode of something like the Hills and it's like a gross cartoon version of what in, in reality is that bad, but it's even more, um, shifty eyed and, and, and gets away with murder more because it's like, these are, these are real people. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like, you know, these are truly successful people and their children and this industry and this environment that's been cultivated by it. So it's like, they have these artistic merits, but then there's these, this really bad dysfunctional families. There's tons of drug use. You know, I've seen kids get killed, rich kids, like killing each other, like in schools because they're trying to be hard gangsters. Cause that's another <laughs> element of it. Right. It was a really weird place to grow up. I'll say that. So, um, so in, in the song, admit it, you, uh, you've said yourself, it's been, uh, analyzed through the nth degree by so many people about it being a, com a commentary upon, um, in one form, one, one reason, one form, it was, uh, the, the scenesters, the hipsters, the people, uh, the, the, um, the caricatures, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. Um, so if you go to LA and you go to the places that are the kind of like the hipster punk places, right. You see people in their thirties who are dressing a certain way and they got the right, right hat on and they right. got the right jeans and they yeah. got the right t-shirt and everything. And, and these are people in their thirties. So it's kind of like, isn't the whole point of being a subculture is that subcultures do tend to automatically yeah. want to, you know, they have to relate to each other. So they have to look like each other. They have to talk like each other. They have to right. use the right lingo everything. So is there kind right. of like a way that you cannot get away from being in yes and no to me I in a way. recently i've become more aware of what it is that really bothers me about really? certain levels of pretentiousness thinking about it from that aspect in terms of like like when i look at when i go to a mall anywhere in america when i'm on tour and i see a kid in jinkos black jinkos and you know a black mohawk with an oversized like you know Doing I'm old not going to say ICP. No, I'm, no, but you're doing it. They're doing it old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Very or, mid nineties. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, still, it's so big. The hot topic culture, like like the true hot topic culture, right, with like right. the like big leather pants. It annoys me less um, uh, than what we were talking about before, to some degree. I, um, if we're going to talk about generalizations, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is I, it's very important to me to illuminate about that song and about my personality that. Um, no, unless you're talking about Nazis or murderers, no <laughs> classification of person can be accurate. But what, but on a personal level, with my own little ticks and tastes, I'm less annoyed by what people choose to represent mm -hmm. with, let's say, um, the typical street punk look mm -hmm. than than you know, you know, someone who may look like the guys in MGMT. You know what I mean? To me, I'm a lot more. I immediately my guard goes up when I when I, whereas I can sit behind, I can sit next to a dude who's dressed like, you know, someone in Wu Tang. You know, and and those a lot of those dudes dress very similar to each other, and I'll just be like, oh, okay, this seems like someone I could have a conversation with. Right. But 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 that's my personal 
it comes from years. I've just gone through so many horrible experiences in environments like that. Right. But some of my best friends, and I'm not that far off, to be honest. I don't, I don't dress like a street punk. I don't dress like a preppy type guy. I mean, like I'm a fairly like look like I'm in my mid twenties guy that you could find in Williamsburg or find in, you know, wherever Silver Lake. But I've just, I, I went to college in uh, this place called Sarah Lawrence mm -hmm. um, in New York, which is like the ultimate mecca of hipster coll collegiate. Right. And then I, and then I moved to Brooklyn, which is where I recorded. And this was all at a very young age. So I, I, saw so much you know i i'm sure that people that come from other different subcultures have something to offer in terms of rebellion against what's bad in their own subculture right but for me being so overly exposed to these facets of youth culture right now i'm able to sort of, i was able especially at that time to point out what annoyed me about that whereas there's stuff in every subcult you know that's yeah annoying. this is difficult it's difficult i mean if you go on warp tour right exactly that's the exactly. ultimate kind of uh, culture of cult so to speak so and there's annoying stuff in there too but but to be honest it's like like i said it's all about comfort levels and i think everyone has the right to be annoyed by certain things and to not be annoyed by certain other things and to me when i was ni 19 or 20 when i wrote admit it those are the things that that i felt it wasn't even annoyance i mean to be honest i rarely write things that are negative out of just pure annoyance it was uh -huh. it was mostly like feeling that there was something wrong morally going on amongst uh amongst what i was talking about being produced by what i was talking about and and i'll hopefully illuminate it with the course of this conversation i mean it's all pretty connected uh in my mind i mean i'm a very analytical uh person and i know what i'm it isn't random my anger doesn't just come from the fact that this particular thing kind of irks me, so I'm going to write a whole song about it. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a direction for the band. You know, I just I want to go back because I do want to talk about uh, your time in Brooklyn, but it, just to kind of go back it, again, going through the uh, the interviews and so forth. Didn't really hear a lot about what you were like in high school. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of they're in high school. They met, they did the band and the EPs, mm -hmm. and you know, it's like, what were you like? Um, I was a really funny character. I went through a total change. Um. I mean, in, in broader senses, I was like a fairly popular, uh, you know, nice kid um, who didn't really subscribe to any clique or group of people. Okay. Um, you know, I had genuine friends who I really cared about. Um, I wasn't good at sports. You know, I wasn't on any extreme. You know what I mean? I wasn't like the total cool kid at school, but then I wasn't. I wasn't like an alien by any, but inside I was very alienated based on what I said at the beginning of the yeah. conversation. Um, it's just that there were a lot of kids who felt that way, at least the, my close friends. So we stuck together and I had some really substantial, um, um, but the main change that, that went, that happened to me over the course of high school is like, I went in as this really idealistic, romantic guy. Um, you know, I came from a small Jewish, uh, uh, elementary school that was just a little world of heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And then I went to this high school, which, like I said, was very polluted by this like upper class. Though you know, I was never particularly rich, but my parents are well off to some mm -hmm. degree. But like really rich kids who were really, really jaded, really you know did a lot of drugs. You know, we're having lots of sex already. I was like this little scared virgin. It was a semi-private school, wasn't it? Yes, it was a private school. Oh, it was, oh, it was private, full mm -hmm. private. Okay. Yep. Okay. And um, and I went through this, like I started writing "Say Anything" songs at the beginning of this this growth. 
Hmm. Um, and th- those were those first songs that kids still have today. These acoustic songs with Sappy and okay. we, right. we made our first EP called Junior Varsity. And that right. was the, that era. And the Menorah EP, was that after that? That was way after. Because by after then, okay. I was already starting to experience like depression, alienation, drug use. Okay. Like basically around the age of 17, I was so fed up with being um, – the one guy who gave a crap, you know, the one guy in the room who was like, you know, just want it, you know, like, for instance, I was in this really unrequited, unrequited relationship with this girl who was my best friend. It was like this really formative experience, had a lot to do with why I say anything started. And I saw her hurting herself in all these ways yeah, yeah. that come from this society. And this was the beginning of how I identified what Say Anything's purpose really was. Because mm-hmm. I saw society and the government and all these things and their effects being distilled in this one per- this one girl. Yeah. And it destroyed me. It was so hard for me to watch. I was like, you are such a nice person, but you, you know, because your parents divorce of this, you're you're acting this particular way because, you know, you're made fun of because you look a certain way, you're now having to feel bad and you have this complex. And it destroyed me. I would cry about it. I was like torn up about it. And finally, it just drove me to the point where I was like, I can't be the martyr anymore. I need to be a part of some kind of culture. I need to become a kid or I'm going to freak out. And my unfortunate reaction to that and how I chose to deal with it was to start smoking weed. And I started doing that when I – and you know, to, and, and socially and just partying. And that was around when I was 17 or 18 and that started this whole – that was my experience in high school. I basically went from the most innocent kid you would ever know and that's where Say Anything started. Sure. To, you know, where the dorm room, like to to where college start and baseball led it in that direction where it was just starting to get darker, really got seriously depressed and 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 the alienation led me to try to act out and just try to be a part of anything, anything alive and full of life instead of feeling so dark and alienated and just by myself in my idealism, in my like romanticism, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, just for the listeners, we we have the uh, <laughs> yeah the jet fuel has now shown up. Thank yes, you. thank you. No um, more weed. Now we have the six shot. <laughs> six shot. Latte. Let me know if it's the right way. It better be. I'm sure it it's is. Son of the Cleveland Clinic. It so. looks disgusting. Six so. shots of mm-hmm. espresso in. This is rare for me. I actually stopped. Um, this is like special occasions, a little party. <laughs> Party and a drink right here. <laughs> Woo! AP podcast party down. Um, yeah, man. You know, uh, I was the same way in middle school. Um, yeah. uh, and when you get that letdown, yeah, when the world hits you like a ton of bricks, yeah, it's. Re- I think it lasts with you the rest of your life, and it's 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 a complete internal struggle not to kind of go over to that dark side of you know fuck the world fuck everybody everybody sucks nobody's you know there is yeah. no such thing as unconditional love that yeah. whole train wreck oh yeah it's i mean that struggle is just like the day-to-day of my life probably the biggest struggle in the world but i mean i've managed i mean when we talk about the new album i'll talk about it but it's mm-hmm. like it's funny because when you get let down i've i've re it's like I I always heard about this and I related to it in this weird way as if I knew it would happen to me at that early stage when I was like 14 and discovered like like emo core and like left left uh I mean right excuse me east coast hardcore and stuff like that where it was rooted in this feeling of being like thrown away and spit on and then finding some amount of power yeah. and I was like oh what I feel like that's going to happen to me knowing myself and I gravitated towards that music so much and I've seen over the course of the 
past few records really been hammered down and then carrying it with you, like you said, for the rest of my life is an important part, but finally rising above it. Yeah. But carrying it with you is really important. Letting yourself be okay with the fact that you're carrying with this betrayal, which isn't your fault. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there are certain things that were my responsibility that I did in reaction to it, but to mm-hmm. let go of the, the that it was my fault that I got hurt in right. so many ways that were beyond me is like a big realization. I mean, in therapy, all these things, they'll, they'll tell you that you need to let go sometimes of certain things that were not your responsibility to, mm. that happened to you. You know, the, 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 again, the stories kind of go, and then he met Kobe at a uh, Jewish summer camp. Mm-hmm. What about Kobe that just, what, what connects you guys all this time? Um, he uh... Going on 10 years. Going on 10 years, uh, musically, I guess, uh, you know, not more importantly, but to some, what might interest the listeners more is that from the beginning, since we were 14, as our, both of our talents developed for writing parts and, you know, my, my talent for songwriting developed and his talent at drums and songwriting developed, he's the only guy I've ever really played with, even though I've played with amazing players. Um, who's able to literally almost read my mind and play exactly what I want him to play with that and then make make it better. You know what I mean? Like mm. he will get in there and just pick up in a second on how I'm playing. He's so attuned to me. And part of that is just because we've been really best friends. I mean, he was, you know, a groomsman at my wedding. Like he, we've really had a very close and rocky and – um substantial relationship where we're very honest with each other and he's very funny because as a person he's kind of like my my foil in the sense that he's socially awkward in the ways that i'm not and in the other way around you know like perfect yin and yang it's yin and yang situation it's sort of a whole like there's always usually two people like that in the band sometimes it's the singer and the lead guitar player and they have a certain environment but with in our band it's me and kobe have you has there ever been a comfortable moment um you know that this has been you know um it's not like with Trent Reznor where it's like, yeah, obviously Nine Inch Nails is Trent. Right. And it seems like there's been a very subtle um, confusion slash struggle with saying, well, say anything is Max. Mm-hmm. Well, no, say anything is all these guys, you know. Um, and then there's some people who say, well, actually, say anything is just Max and Kobe. And, I mean, is there has it been some times where you kind of had to, um, as the lead singer, as the mm-hmm. front man, were you – purposely had to take a step back and kind of pull him up with you so that totally but i mean not not in a sort of uh it never feels exasperating or like oh here i am again trying to show that it's not just me because it's like it always happens in these cool natural ways like on this record kobe became the second singer of the band Mm -hmm. which was starting on our last record but it was amazing once he got in the studio i was like you know what kobe has a great voice like he deserves a chance to sing in this band he's been in this band for 10 years and when we experimented with it, it was like ridiculous. It was amazing. It was it was the same thing when Alex joined the band and I was like, I I played the bass on Israel Boy and I was really confident I'm gonna be like, okay, you're giving up your life. That's how it started. You know, Alex was like, I'm gonna leave, I'm not gonna go to college, but I wanna try playing on the records. So I was pulling him up, but it, it felt natural and it's like it's a respect thing. It is and it's out of also respect for their talents, not just for the fact that I want to be nice. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. And and to to sum it up for everyone, I mean, 
I would say that it isn't that inaccurate to use nine inch nails as a gauge for say anything, but I'd say that it's somewhere between that and maybe the Foo Fighters. Hmm. For me, that's the best comparison of like what, how much I am say anything. Cause it's like in the Foo Fighters, those dudes are like, everyone plays on the record. You know what I mean? Like Dave Grohl gave up his, his best instrument, you know, for Taylor and, but at the same time, you know, so that hasn't quite happened because it's like, we still, I'm still a control freak. I love to play all the guitar on the record, but <laughs> you know, and that's the nine inch nails aspect where I don't mind people saying that same thing as me, because in many aspects it really is. And I've worked for that. It's not something I'm ashamed of, mm -hmm. but, but we, we're a tight knit band. Everyone's role is very important and they help shape it. And it's very much like the Foo Fighters in that way. So Every group, every group, it doesn't, every organization, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're in a band or you're running a flower shop or a major corporation, yeah. there's a little bit of that. Somebody's got to be the benevolent dictator. And, right. And, and, yeah. and it's the only way to kind of get a consensus at mm -hmm. some point. Or the, true democracies really don't work after a right. while. So, uh, and as I think at one point you said that, you know, at some point or another, you got to be a dick and it sucks. But That's true. You got to be the dick. But it's so, for me though, it's like those times and being, I try to illuminate the being a dick to be when you really have to be a dick, which is when someone's being a dick to you. Because in most cases, you can just be a benevolent, whatever leader or dictator or however and and no one cares because that's the role but if right. someone's being a dick back i mean then you get into a whole and that happens in every bit someone gets in a bad mood you know maybe i'm being the dick whatever it's like you know however those are the only times where i feel like i'm ever called to be a dick is when i feel like there's a certain line being crossed yeah it's rare it's rare in our band we're really close and uh you know Everyone's pretty respectful of the whole shtick. So from your experience and from seeing friends of yours that are musicians and, and leaders in bands, because sometimes the leader of the band can be the bassist. Yes. Um, how do you know, how, how, do you, how can you learn to, for those musicians that are listening to us now, how can you learn to kind of gauge where your control freakiness, which usually works, yeah. has now become consuming so that... Yeah. Other because you have to have the other band members buy into the whole project. Of course, everybody has you know in a way they have to at least feel that yeah. they have a say. Yeah. So how do you check yourself? I mean, to be honest, it's it's helpful to be at the level of yeah. friendship that I am with the other guys because it's like naturally through conversation as peers, which right. we are. I mean, in reality, like I may have some amount of power in this band, um, but I'm just. We're all around the same age. Like everyone's the same level of intelligence. Everyone has the same level of capability. So in reality, a lot of conversations come up as peers mm -hmm. um, where I'm able to gauge how things are going in the band How and that helps me run it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then there have been times – it was mostly during the my mental illness's peak – where I was doing things that were really harmful for the rest of the band and the fact that I had all this power made it worse because there there was less – although there was a safety net of people looking out for me more, yeah, there was less people able to stop me. Because if I technically wanted to say, you're all fired, this is now – the band is me and, uh, uh, you know – a monkey and this is saying anything now that could literally happen today right now you know what i mean right right but since i was crazy it was like or, or i was i you know not to use that word but i i, I say when i was crazy 
in a sort of, you know, so <laughs> I say it, so I guess I am allowed to say it. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. When I was at, at you know, at the peak of my mania, like there, there were certain ideas and, and thoughts that I was having that were that far fetched. So it's like, and, and I was being irresponsible. I was smoking weed and, and I wasn't willing to accept my diagnosis. And it's part of that I've chalked up to being young and that it's a hard thing to deal with. And then part of it, well, it was some level of irresponsibility and, and something that was probably the last major time in my life where I was, I think really hurtful to the people around me, my family and my friends and the people in the band. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, I don't want to, because that story has been told so much. Yeah. I don't want to go into all that again. Yes. There cool. is one question though that you just kind of, you seem to um, kind of cause me to think about this. Um, Adrian Amadeo. Amadeo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for the management firm. He's become one of your yes. closest friends. Yep. And at the time there's a story that's in that, Trevor Kelly cover story again, where, yeah. he, where he would be on that tour 2005, four, around Don't there. Ask me. Okay, all right, we'll, we'll skip that. that. It's, it's, oh. it's about roughly mid mid uh, decade. So, mid crazy. and then he would give you the um, uh, the, the Zyprexa, yeah, and uh, which is you know to help with mm-hmm. um, bipolar and everything mm-hmm. else. And and you would and you admitted to him later on that you were spitting it out, yeah, after he walked away from you. It's an interesting, or it's a, it's an interesting dilemma for people that work for somebody that is going through. Let's say they're going through a chemical addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, a group of people around them that um, are dependent upon that person, yes, because they get a paycheck or they're in a That's band. That's it. Yeah, and so it's kind of like the Michael Jackson effect, where people don't want to say no, right. And so did you kind of have that situation at all? Where- luckily, I mean, luckily, it comes down to this. The thing with Michael Jackson that is different than me is is that the friends and especially family uh-huh. in my life versus his life were just more – less enabling. There was some degree of enabling mostly coming from ignorance and the people around me not really understanding bipolar yet. You know what I mean? Most of the people yeah. I knew smoked weed. Like, you know what I mean? They were just like, okay, I'll smoke weed with you. It may be kind of weird right now, but like, why not? You know what I mean? However, especially when it comes, you, it always goes back to the family, you know, the parents. It's like, my mom is, she's nuts. She's totally there for me. She's totally supportive. Which is beautiful, you know? Yeah, the best So many thing. kids don't get that. Yeah, Michael Jackson was right. beaten, you know, by his father before, and I have a great dad, and he was there for me as much as he could. He was confused, you know, but he, they were still there for me. I mean, they were yeah. calling me. They put me in, you know, a certain program that I went. They spent the money on a program for me to go away for a little bit and to, like, really come to terms with it. That's the, the manager place? Managers, yeah, and that was the Houston. last place that I really experienced mania and I haven't – it's been – it's been three – three and a half years now, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so, you know, I think it comes down to just, you know, Michael Jackson. I don't know his, you know, I can't speak for his family. I'm sure a lot of his family cared about him and yeah. I'm sure he had friends that cared about him. But to me, the way that looks is just that it was so much money. It was so much enabling. It was so much of what you're talking about that and a lack of a true support group together. So, so if you, so if there's somebody listening to this right now, and uh, they, um, they're 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 friends, they work for, they mm-hmm. are in a band with somebody that's got an issue, mm-hmm. whatever the issue is, mm-hmm. what would you tell them? I would say it's like don't forget compassion and don't forget truth. Um, 
because those are the things that get people through in those times. And it really will speak to somebody, even though, you know, somebody who's mentally unstable will come and be mean to you or say something to you. That's, you know, it, it, you just have to be a rock. It's a really frustrating, unfair position, but it's just how it is. You know, yeah. the people that I think about that pulled me the most through are the people that would say to me with compassion and with like utter speak truths with utter compassion and just be like, Max, we care about you. And I'd be like, no, you're trying to kill me. <laughs> and they'd be like, no, man, we're not trying to kill you. We're not trying to kill you because we love you. You know what I mean? Like saying things like that or like I'm I'm terrible. I'm I'm Hitler. I'm the worst person ever. I made this album that's going to make kids into Nazis. I've literally said that. And really? My, yeah. Which record though? Israel Boy. Oh, okay. And my mom was like, no, no, it's a great record. That's not true. You know, and she's crying. She's hating it. You know, I mean, it's it's an emotional experience and it's – I don't wish it upon anyone. But if you're going to have to help someone through a period of deep depression or – bipolar or schizophrenia it's like the most you can do is just be a rock look out for yourself but look out for them and and speak truth to a certain extent you don't take it personally what they say <sighs> oh not at all i mean in an ideal world but i know yeah. better than anyone that that's impossible you know it's impossible not to be affected by it it's just to know that eventually you're going to clear it up mm -hmm. was there any sort of um were there any you know Chris Conley when he did this yeah. show he talked about that his paranoia drove many people away from him mm -hmm. and he got really um he realized afterwards when he he's like wow like the damage that he's done and how many people he's hurt and stuff like that but when you and he talk about you and his relationship i mean is there yeah. any sort of connect like not connect the dots but did you guys ever kind of look at each other and kind of go yeah like yeah. me too and you know, did you, was there a oh, yeah. team? I mean, just writing the Two Tongues record, we became hyper aware of it's another kind of yin and yang situation with me and him, where he, looking at him, I mean, like, especially in the circumstances of that, he was my John Lennon growing up. You know really? what I mean? Okay. And even to this day, like, I will go on record and be like, I like, like, the Beatles are in my top five bands, but like, I like Saves a Day more. Like that's how extreme of a person I am about Saves the Day because they literally helped me survive in life. Mm -hmm. um, having – adding that dynamic plus the dynamic of him seeing my band come up and the sort of like what my band projects, what my songwriting projects uh -huh. um, and us sort of from afar forming these notions of each other and then becoming actual like really very, very, very close friends. Mm -hmm. Like we – I mean – we didn't just decide to start a side project together. Like we were already hang, like flying to hang out with each other and just playing music and like just loving each other um, for, for various reasons as people. And then because, I mean, there's this really amazing thing underneath, which is that uh, we are the band or at least what he's communicated to me, which makes me feel so great about it is that we're the band that he hoped he would foster by being in a band. You know what I mean? And, wow. they, and they're the band that made me – most inspired me to play music. You know what I mean? So therefore, we fulfill these things that we wanted and they just came true in each other. And he also uh, is super kind, super supportive. Mm -hmm. He played at my wedding. He's always done nothing but try to be responsible about how I look up to him. Mm -hmm. And I try to do the same thing and affirm you know, my belief in his talent, both of which are really true. So – um, 
when it comes to the paranoia stuff and recognizing it, we've had tons of deep discussions where it's like my innate, like just my bipolar disorder and my, my, my bleeding heartness and stuff like that. Whereas, and, and very heated and very like, uh, you know what I mean? And passionate, the com- yeah. passionate and confident in a certain way. Like I'm, I'm confident in certain ways that Chris isn't. And Chris is so confident in ways that I'm not. And so we react really well as a writing team and as, as friends and like the things that like Chris is just like, like Chris sometimes doesn't realize how impactful I think, uh, is the, his life has been on this earth. Right. Cause he's such a cerebral spiritual guy mm-hmm. and very humble. So he, sometimes I have to be like, look, yes, these things are true, but dude, like, Saves the Day is one of the most influential bands in, of the past, you know, 10, 15 years. I don't think you fully grasp it. You may, be, you may be able to, you know, let go of it spiritually and like, you know, the karma. You don't want the karma of, of like growing into ego, but it's important to me that you're at least aware. Right. And I think he wouldn't have – I think it helped him become aware of that stuff just knowing me because we were his favorite new band. And I was able to say, look, yes, you're our favorite band. You know, That's so. just amazing when you can get to that point and do that yeah. with somebody. You know, usually, uh, usually life kind of t- sometimes can be unfair, but it worked out perfectly for you. Oh, it was weird. Yeah. So, Junior Varsity and the Menorah um, Project. The, um, it, if I'm correct, these are flying out there mm-hmm. out on the on the Ethernet tubes. Yes. And um, but they've not been officially been popped no. out on any any chance box set huge yeah hopefully 50th anniversary box set yes yes that's what we want to do yeah okay completely just we have tons of b-sides and a lot of kids react greatly to them so so right before we do our music break our first Mm -hmm. music break i want to talk about the um you you ended up signing to doghouse in the end Mm -hmm. and and there was that kind of uh, you know drive through and epitaph we're throwing um you know uh compliments left and right and, and doing everything um uh, what's where were you guys as a band back then? Like, why? Um, how are you feeling about being in the middle of all that? Because I think it wasn't like Epitaph or it was Drive Through or somebody said they came and saw you. They went, "No, oh, this is just a high school band. They're nothing yet." Like, oh yeah, we had both. It was really, it was a really weird dynamic because basically the bands that we grew up playing with, um, were in this major label world, um, purely. Um, you know, and a lot of the people I grew up with, like our lawyer who picked us up when I was like 14 is the red hot chili peppers lawyer. And he's like, <laughs> he's like a family friend at this point. Okay. But so just to put in perspective, this is where I was like, like, whereas most bands that I was jealous of this mentality was like, I knew that bands in smaller towns or on the East coast in Jersey and in long Island were having this amazing tight knit community that was also based around punk rock. And the bands that we grew up playing with were like Rooney uh, Phantom Planet, Kara's Flowers, which later became Maroon 5. Mm-hmm. Like, to put in perspective, these... And then you know how Say Anything sounds. Even then, it, it was even more extreme. We were just a fast, poppy punk band. Right. Um, so it was a really weird dichotomy. And then also, not many people know this, but Drive Through were the people that started me playing music professionally, period, at all. Really? Because I was wanted to be a director... And um, I was emailing Richard about wanting to use a song from this band Mother Mania that was on drive through to use one of their songs um, in my student uh, film. And I'm 
threw in there just like I was like this will never happen but by the way because I was like a big drive through records fan by the way I play guitar and I write songs <laughs> I'm just amazed that you were doing a student film in high school yeah and, well, and, it was and you were trying to get crappy. clearance rights yeah. yeah I was trying to get clearance rights <laughs> obviously I was you an were intense in kid <laughs> uh, so I emailed him and I literally this is I, I only had I never played a show I had never met someone else in a band I was just a kid who went to high school and played guitar and wrote songs for very base level reasons. I never thought it would be professional. And I went to drive through and I played for them and they're like, we will sign you right now. This is like right then they I was like, this is the best moment of my life. And they're like, we got to take you to MCA. We got to start. This is going to be huge. And, um, Immediately up to MCA. Immediately. <laughs> immediately. And I'm just like, whoa, you guys are friggin' awesome. They gave me a bunch of CDs and I went home in this surreal like haze with my mom who drove me there. And um and after that, this whole roller coaster ride began when we were so young. And to be honest, like I said, it was very weird. Um, it affected me. Um, just seeing the inner machinations instead of being part of, you know, you look at bands like you know, take one, like just pluck one band out of there, taking back Sunday. Mm -hmm. Where they came from was like this total organic environment where you're handing out flyers for shows, you're playing at the small venue, kids are building and building. And we had to do that in an environment where mostly it was like you play one show, there's like 20 people from major labels already there looking at you. Right. And that was happening at the same time as we're trying to follow this organic path of bands that we look up to, like. You know, so it was a weird, it was a weird dynamic. We really had to, we were the odd man out because those other bands, Rooney and Phantom Planet were so based about hype and like, I, I like those, I mean, Phantom mm -hmm. Planet's an amazing band, but it was so much about, we're kids, kids of entertainment industry. It was a machine. Yeah, exactly. And whether the bands are good or bad, like it was very much so about that. And we were like slightly keyed into that, but mostly trying to recreate this like organic thing for say anything. So it was a weird, you know, the whole high school, how we came up was a very cool, weird thing. It's, you know, being a kid of mm -hmm. the entertainment industry, you know, um, there's this, some people out in the Midwest think you got to move to LA yeah. to be noticed. Yeah. Well, but but, no. but if you talk to people in LA, they're like the last people we pay attention to are the people out here. Right. It's a that's the, that's the weird dichotomy <laughs> about it because it's like it's throwaway there. You know what I mean? It's like it, not that there aren't really talented people from LA. No, right, right, like, right. But right. there are. But there, it is. It's more like okay, here we go, another showcase. Like it's like you know what I mean. Whereas <laughs> you find a cool little band that you pluck from like Seattle, you know, Seattle becomes this thing, and suddenly it's like whoa, Seattle. And then when it was like Saddle Creek, Omaha, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. But now it's like L.A., L.A. Who get you know? It's like we've seen it before, L.A. Like when is there ever? It would have to be such an extreme. I would love to be that band from L.A. that people are like, they're from L.A.? What the, They need to be from, like, Kentucky because it's like, you know, L.A. is so just obvious. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I love it. You know? And that's a song title, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> the uh, – when you did sign, how many, how many records was that for? What, what did Doghouse sign you to? Do you remember? I, I want to say three. Hmm. Um which was standard. I mean, we, the cool thing about what happened to us with Doghouse is just that we got signed around this time where 
major labels were recognizing that indie labels were actually the ones that were signing the bands that were making more rock, rock money. Right. You know what I mean? So right. what was happening was like Vagrant, uh, you know, Victory and Doghouse were seen as these tastemakers. So we actually signed to Doghouse right at this point, right after they had signed the Rejects. We were their next real bigger signing. Okay. And um, – and it was just therefore like, okay, we're offering you this to the mainstream world. You know what I mean? Like, you know, publicists were already interested. You know what I mean? People mm -hmm. were – besides that fact, Doghouse is linked into like a really old tradition of actual punk DIY like cool people in bands and who work for labels that are like this family with Hydrahead and – Right. Uh, big wheel that I immediately became a part of. And I got to meet people who were on both ends because I had been so saturated in this industry thing growing up in LA. It was really cool. It was like meeting my heroes. You know what I mean? The guy, one of the guys who managed us early on was this guy, Rama, who, who signed Piebald and put out all these Jimmy Eat World at the drive-in records. And, um, so you got stories galore and yeah. Oh, there were just years of just like being a dog. I remember the first, the first day I signed to Doghouse, the day I signed to Doghouse, I was hanging out with Dirk from Doghouse. And this is just, like I said, a guy who comes from LA who's saturated in this, you know, BS of just like, this isn't what I'm interested in. This is a kid who's like totally goes nuts for 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 equal vision records and right. revelation records and stuff. And the first day that I signed a doghouse, we were just hanging out in LA at a mall and we ran into Jim Adkins from Jimmy Eat World. The first thing, like I'm hanging out with these guys from Doghouse and they're like, oh hey Jim, what's up? And I'm just sitting there like, what? What is happening to me right now? It's, it's like to me, it's like the opposite effect of you know, that was the biggest deal in the world to me at the time. And it was the opposite effect of like, imagine someone who like wants to be an actor and then comes to LA and then like gets representation and they're suddenly like, oh, Tom Cruise, like they're meeting, like whatever, like Johnny <laughs> Depp. Like it was the opposite effect because I was like, oh my God, Rama Mayo, the guy who they mentioned in that one piebald song who's like, he signed the damn personals. Like, you know, for me, it was like this weird opposite effect. <laughs> Okay, first music break. Um, let's t give me three songs by three different bands, and, and I'm going to give you time periods. Okay, sure. First time, first is when you were in high school. Mm -hmm. If there was a song when your first pick, first because you had started playing piano originally, you got piano yes. lessons, right, yes. and then you kind of went from there. Yes. And uh, just out of, very briefly, what is the instrument you wish you could play? Drums. Better drums. Okay. Better. Really drums. wish I could play them. In general, I'm terrible. Yeah, I can't. I want to. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. Okay, so um, so give me the song that from that time period when you're just starting to put together bands and playing them is like yeah. would have been your theme song. Um, the the record uh, that made me want to uh, play music and I guess the song "The Good Life" by Weezer from Pinkerton. Um, to me, that was the record that indicated that someone like me could be in a band and be highly successful at it. Hmm. Um. Because it was so damn weird and neurotic and frigging sloppy. And I was just like, oh. Because I've just been used to listening to bands being like, how do they do that? Even the most remedial pop punk bands, I'd be like, how do they play so fast and chug, chug so quickly? I'm not that good at that. But then when I heard Pinkerton, there was something about it where I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yet clearly the guy who's writing these songs is a flawed, weird <laughs> – nutty guy i mean clearly listen to the you know lyric the, i mean it's 
and, and there and then I was like, I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna try. And and that's that's what began me. So I mean, although there are other bands in high school that later overtook that, I mm-hmm. mean that's what made me start. And so then when you started I guess your your transformation, your 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 change yeah. from being you're transferring into the into the I don't know how to say the more loose casual yeah. west yeah. coast end of your yes. existence. Yes. Uh was there a band that kind of typified that time in your life? Um that you switched to or maybe you It was of- really all those uh I was it was heavy into uh I mean cuz saves a day, I want to say saves a day, but um yeah, let's just say saves a day because I mean if you look at the transformation between uh, their records through being cool and stay what you are. Mm-hmm. Um, dudes got more mellow, started listening to the Beatles, kind of le- less uptight, <laughs> you know, started growing out their hair and just like, you know, getting more cerebral. And, and that's what led me into discovering like classic rock and real indie rock was seeing Saves the Day, who was my favorite band in high school, sort of become these bohemian hippies. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, and I was like, I was like, I guess there is a whole world out there outside of hardcore. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I was like, you know, that's when I reached back and became re-obsessed with the Beatles, and I became, you know, obsessed with Queen big time. Uh, so it led me into my college years, which were really formative for, uh, for say anything, because that's how Is a Real Boy got started. It was from that. So, so which growth. say anything? Uh, uh, which saves the day? So. Um, stay at your funeral. At your funeral? Yeah. Okay. And what's your favorite Queen record? Um, uh, Night at the Opera oh, was, yeah. was the big one for me. And uh, the third one is, and we're going to jump a lo- ahead a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but to the time where the, the mania was consuming you. Yes. Was there a song that got you through? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a band called Annual Noah's by The Trail of Dead, mm-hmm. which is a great, amazing band that's still around. Um, and, uh, they had a song called Worlds Apart. They actually made this, uh, they made a concept record, which was about, um, a failing relationship, but also about, uh, uh, but also about the conditions of the, of the world and the government that would create people that are attracted to these kinds of relationships. Yeah. And that was a big realization for me and and understanding and also what I was going through. I was in a really, at the time of my mania, I was in a really unhealthy relationship. Mm. And um, that, you know, with all my paranoia about the world and the government and everything that, that was part of my mania, acknowledging that at least part of that was truthful and also addressing this personal relationship I was going through and putting it in perspective you know, adjacent to what's going on in the world. I mean, that is what Say Anything is. If I can define, you know, what we generally do, it's about using personal relationships to illuminate what's going on in the greater yeah. world, in the universe. And and that was what I was going through at the time. So it really helped. So their song Worlds Apart by uh, Trail of Dead would definitely illuminate that era. Yeah. 
themselves about giving money to Jesus fucking H. Christ. Got to ask about this. You've been asked about this. You just, uh, you, you finally, I guess, finally yeah. uh, played Colorblind. Yeah. And uh, what was it about that record? Is it just because it was a different sound for you guys off the baseball record? And you just. Completely. I mean, it was. <sighs> it's a mental block. You're just like, I can't go back and. I, I, I knew I would eventually. So it was never so bad as like, screw that. That's not even saying anything. That's why we didn't change our name. You know, when we made as a real boy after we took a year off, basically. Um, but I don't know. I guess I found the beauty in that song again, and I found a way to sort of like reapproach the older songs and sing them differently, so that I feel I can relate to the lyrics more. So it was really more of a relations experience. That was yeah, it was like association with like like the musicianship because I don't. I think that they're substantial songs, and I really appreciate that people like them a lot, and I yeah. don't dismiss them at, by any means. I just and also I just didn't want to get into this whole world of it's like. Until we put out that box set, that B-Sides box set, it's like the old stuff I really don't consider to be official say anything. You know, there are world – there are bands that have unofficial full lengths and demo records that are out there and kids discover them and you play them once in a while. That's how I want it to be with baseball and the stuff before because I just don't – Is a Real Boy to me feels like a first record and, and it was our first release and – um I it was I worked so hard on it with the the thought that this is my first record, um, that I I don't want to dismiss that and I want to honor the fact that I literally slaved over it because it was our debut, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but as with most things in life, if you tell people that they can't have it or you prohibit people from having something, right. they want it more. Hey, and that's so cool. now it seems like this record is, has a mythology about it. It's been hyped yeah. up into something. Like you're yeah. kind of certain, like if it ever does really come out in an official stance again, people are going to be going like, we waited all this for that. Yeah, <laughs> they will. I mean, that's what I'm telling them. But uh, no, no. I mean, the cool, the cool thing is I think I'll get both reactions. Like this is insanely crappy. And then I'll also get, whoa, this is really good for their age. And like the, I can see where the – because I was thinking about baseball the other day and I was like, you know what? It's, it's, it's derivative in certain ways and it's very messy and sloppy and you know the songwriting is getting there but not there yet. However – it was pretty, even for the time, considering how obsessed I was at the time with like Saves the Day and the Ghetto Kids and Jimmy World. It was at the peak of like my emo like thing. It, it it's kind of weird and doesn't subscribe to all the cliches of the a lot of those uh, that genre at the time, where a lot of the bands sounded very similar. Like it 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 could have been on Vagrant circa like 2001, but it would have been very left field. Even though, I'm not saying it's as good as any of those bands records, but it's like, it's definitely weird. And it indicates that we would later be like, you know, this kind of amiglam, is that the word? Amiglam? I never know how to pronounce it. Amiglam <laughs> of like, um, a moglam <laughs> of like, uh, 
you know, weird Beatles-esque pop and like amalgamation, amalgamation Amalgamation. of of indie rock and of like Queen and all these weird influences that were starting to show themselves on that, you know, record. So it's weird. I was just thinking about the songs and I was like, I'm kind of proud of it. You know what I mean? I'm (laughs) I'm a little ashamed, but I'm pretty proud of it. You know, is a real boy. Mm hmm. 2004 you've been through a lot between the baseball record and getting to that one mm-hmm. but the quote that i think i wonder if it's kind of the quote a quote i saw online was i can't believe i've lived my life thus far without hearing this masterpiece and i've wondered now if this record has now become it's it's up there with the gods so to speak of someone said records. that about about, about, his, about wow, yeah cool. yeah yeah and so and there i mean there's I mean, if you could put together a compilation of the past decade and put down some of those record singles that came out of that time period that were top favorites, yeah, some of the songs on that record are no doubt part of that. Um, That's cool. Are there? Are you ready to perform some of those songs for twenty, thirty years of your life? Is a real boy completely, completely. I love it. I still haven't gotten over it. I still connect to the songs still yeah even more some of the songs i've found new meaning in them okay a lot of the a lot of my lyrics are so organic and pour out of me from like a weird very raw sense of inspiration yeah that later i'm able to analyze them and find new meaning in them um so i'm glad and especially like if you look at a band like weezer or green day where it's like dookie or you know the blue album it's like they they still Green Day still made American Idiot, yet Dookie is this hallmark that just you can't live it down. It doesn't matter. It becomes something in that band's career that I'm flattered. I'm flattered that we made a kind of record like that, and it makes me proud and it makes me happy that that's what I wanted out of that record. When we were making it, we're like, I think this is the kind of record we're trying to make right now. And that's what we, the producers, the label, we were just, this is the kind of record we have to make. Do you stay in touch with Stephen Trask anymore? I do, once in a while. I mean, less than I would like. Um, mm. And same with Tim. But uh, everyone's just so busy yeah, in yeah, the yeah. world. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly, I mean, my amount of respect and love for those guys hasn't changed. I love them. And What was the original, the original reason why the reissue that Jay put out was a real boy? Mm-hmm. Um the story is that it was originally supposed to be called versus AIDS, mm-hmm. and but it didn't get done in the end. Why was the charity end of it dropped out of it? To me, I mean, it was a semi cop out on my part because oh, we still could have okay. done we still could have done it. But I guess my mentality, which still exists, is that we I want to do something radical when we have enough when we have enough draw and like financial, I mean, we're like starting power. to get to that point. Yeah. To the yeah. point where it would be like a radical thing. You know what I mean? Got like, it. cause I was, not only was I slightly bipolar at the time. So I was like getting like really worked up. But I was like, I want, I want this record to come out on doghouse and vagrant and epitaph. And I want all of them to work together and have it be a charity record. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? But yeah. everyone promotes it. And like I, management was like starting to work on it. You know what I mean? That's how serious it was. And then I'm like, wait a second. And like I had like – I think it was Kevin, my friend Kevin who was managing the band at the time. I was like, dude, like just do this later. Like you can do this. But like right now you're trying to worry about even just establishing your band. Like we were just starting to get big. 
And I'm like, okay, well now, because it was also a product of my bipolar where I was like, like overreacting to the fact that I had any sort of like, like the ability to change things. Yeah, because yeah, I'm yeah. a very moral guy. I really always want to do the right thing. So uh -huh. I was like, okay, we're starting to get some power. We better friggin' use it now. We got to make our, you know, <laughs> try label versus AIDS record now. And then I eventually, you know, calmed down and I was like, okay, we can do this. It's and I see place. myself doing something in the future. That's awesome. Like that. That's beautiful. Is there, there is there an alt? I read that there's an alternate version of Belt. It's an mm -hmm. acoustic version, mm -hmm. and supposedly the lyrics at the end of it were changed. And Maybe it, the story is that they were written so that they were trashing indie labels. Oh, it was it was uh, it was a joke. I was okay. I was so that so... is not a true story. That's oh no no it, it's, it's, it's in there it's in there. But I'm like Doghouse, screw this budget production because like Doghouse. Uh, set me up with their friend um, who worked out of a suburb in Boston. We were just doing this really fun experience making a 7-inch for Belt, mm. an acoustic 7-inch. So we were having a great time. And, I mean, this is what I wanted to be doing. I mean, I would never have an issue with – first of all, Doghouse gave me a really considerable budget for a record. Second of all, we were making an acoustic 7-inch in someone's basement. So I wanted to just joke around about the fact that, you know, that it – I was just, you know, just having a laugh. Can't find it anywhere either. Really? But put that one on the box set. Yeah, yeah. See, I won't download. I know oh, you. Yeah. I know for a while you, you've admitted it. Like I, you used to download. I used to I've a never lot. downloaded a song. That is friggin' awesome. I, I am broke. Well, <laughs> um, in defense of the genre, you, uh, you know, at all the press releases over twenty-five years of AP mm -hmm. um, that we've received, um, your your statement about. Uh, how you felt about that record and what you plan to do with it, I think is probably one of my top three. Wow, um, awesome. It was quoted, again, hopefully the journalist got it right. You're quoted as saying, I want the record to be the Joshua Tree with balls on laughing gas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Two-disc two set, 23 stars. I'm going to say stars. Yeah. Um, it makes it makes it sound cool. Awesome. Um, and, um, and it seemed like that, that even though it was an intensely personal record for you, um, it uh, somebody wrote online. They said this album needs to be listened to as a whole. Mm -hmm. This is why you cannot skip tracks. If you do, you won't get it. You won't get the story. You won't get the that's point. true. You won't get the story. Um, but <laughs> it seemed like the reviews were split because mm. either people thought it was again like one of these master, one of these great masterpieces, or, yeah. or somebody said that um, it, it was it was too many songs. Yeah. Yep. And and do you think that there's any sort of I mean, <clears throat> I think there's truth to both statements to some degree, but that's just because I'm such a uh, subjective person yeah. when it comes to, like, appreciating different people's opinions and their right to them. Honestly, objectively, um, you know, and but I, I think that it wasn't too many songs. Subjectively, I think it's totally understandable why one might think so. Um, I why two disc? Why two? Why did you go that big? We just knew. We just started writing songs, and we're like, we can't cut any of these. This is telling a story, and if we cut any of them, it's gonna. It's just not. It's gonna be a completely different record. Got it. And to be honest, I think we would have had to literally write a completely different record rather than put those songs minus a few of those songs on a record. Got it. Because they're so interlinked. I mean, the concept of 
of in defense of genre was inspired by that, like I said earlier, that Trail of Dead song mm-hmm. and a few records that I had listened to that were really keyed into this concept, which was – and I mean I could go off forever on how it links back to baseball and how it links back to Israel Boy and the story of my life. But at this stage in my life, it was like being hyper aware of um, – like admit it. You know, at the end of the last record, like recognizes this hypocrisy inherent in society, and that I can somewhat subvert it by, um, you know, by being honest and proud of myself. And then when we got to the era of in defense, that whole thing started to make me feel a little bit alienated, and I gravitated towards a certain type of relationship mm-hmm. with someone based on on the pain I was going through by. F- by feeling so put down by society, which I think, you know, I think that we have so many issues in this government today about greed and lies and, you know, kids can't, you know, corporations that essentially run the world. You know what I mean? We can get really way into those politics, but it's like, these things are kind of like the, you know, typical punk rock mentality about, about the world and how it is and how there are things that need to be changed. But it was drilling me down so hard that I attached that for years, including Is a Real Boy, which is a, a stage of complete, you know, not almost nihilism and like, you know, drug use and pro- promiscuity. And I got to the point where I felt so bad about myself that I had to attach myself to an unhealthy relationship to overcome the result of the effects that this world has on people in this era, in this age of the media, in this age of this type of a government that we're dealing with. And and I had to project it into this ugly relationship. And it's the story of how that relationship was built up mm-hmm. and how it fell apart. And how it, you know, there's and and it's kind of a thing about young love. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like it, it's a really typical first young love, not good young love story where, you know, it's the best thing in the world at first, and it's beyond – it's even above your ideals in a certain way. You know what I mean? It's above what you know is true because it's so true and you're so enraptured in it. Like you have a feeling it's just going to burn away, but you're so in it, and then it does burn away and it leaves you just – it just destroys you as it falls apart and you have to redefine yourself. And it's – you know that's the arc of the record. And I, I don't think I could have told that story or described the different elements of me and society, you know, without all those songs. I'm just really amazed that that, especially J records, that it was your first big project mm. for them. Mm-hmm. And you're coming in with a double disc. I mean, well, didn't you, weren't you guys on phone calls with somebody up there yeah. going, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not gonna be able to play this at radio. Like the guy who, who signed our band is like an unofficial, God, I mean, I know you can't have someone at the label manage you, mm-hmm. but like the amount of A and R, which is what true A and R, which is like really working with the artists on the records that he's done, is unbelievable. His name's Matt, and he signed us at at Sony. He's been our guy for four year, almost five years, maybe now. Wow. Four years in I this think. day and age. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and he, we. That was the worst. That was the only time me and him have ever argued really hard. Or I mean, we we come to. You know, we definitely disagree on certain things and have discussions, but he was like, dude, I just like, can we put out a version that's just, you know, can we like put it out online? Is it, he was trying <laughs> to do anything he could, you know, as doing his job to, 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 to give kids an alternative. And I was like, look, I, I know what this is going to do. 
I know the effect it's going to have. I'm willing to face the consequences. You know, when you have a record that's twice as expensive, half as many kids are going to buy it. It's true. You know what I mean? We still sold up like 135,000 records, but it's less than is a real boy because it costs twice as much. Right. And then also because like this is when illegal downloading got to its peak. So we've got this extremely expensive long record out there and 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 we're like, no, buy this instead of, you know, Fallout Boy for five bucks. You know what I mean? So <laughs> kids are like, No, I mean I'm definitely gonna listen to it, but I'll I'll download that. You know what I mean? And we're lucky, I think, that we even sold as many as we did, to be honest. And I'm very gracious that kids still buy it just for the art and for the experience but but to be like i said to sum it up i i i there's not even one part of me that regrets anything about it i completely love the record mm -hmm. i think it was very important leading into this record mm -hmm. and i really see everything i do being in a band is like a moral mission of some kind and i needed to tell that story i needed to kids who are going through something like that, that kind of a relationship or that kind of a feeling sure. to have something to, 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 to relate to. Not to get you in trouble with any of the other people that are on the yeah. record, but is there anybody on that record that you, that guested that you mm -hmm. would love to sing on stage with? Oh, to, to sing on stage with now? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Anna from that dog who sings on, on no soul. I love that dog. And she was so good when she did it. I would love to, uh, to have her on stage. I mean, I would love to have almost everyone who sang <laughs> on that record uh, perform with us live. And and now that'll end up on a message board. He said yeah. almost. So yes. who is it? Completely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'll let I'll let people. One of the greatest. <laughs> I, one one of the best ideas I've seen was the song shop idea. Oh, thank you. Um, it was 2007 Warped Tour, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. it was like 150 bucks. It was um, no, it was 2008 eight, Warped Tour. It was last yeah, yeah, year. Yeah. Sorry, my years. Yeah. Um, and it was 150 bucks. 150 bucks. And they send yeah. you a two paragraphs about yep. something that's going on in their life. Mm -hmm. And then you would write a acoustic song. Yes. Within so much It actually started out not all of them, not all of them were acoustic because I didn't realize how many there would be or how long it would take. <laughs> so I was like doing full on like lead guitar riffing. I'm like, this is good. Now I'm like, I'm down there with like one guitar track. <laughs> but I still uh How many did you get in the end? So many. I think I've done upwards of Almost a thousand. What? Yeah, you're still doing them. I'm still doing. Them. I'm still on my last hundred. That's that's a, that's yeah. box set two, three, and four. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know. I don't know if I have all of them. But uh, maybe we could do a little project where everyone sends. And the it. funniest thing that came out of that whole thing that I found was that um, you had made a quote at some point. It said, "We have never, nor will ever, be concerned with being accused of selling art, selling out. Yes. It is by far the most inane, misused." term ever and there are people that actually said to you mm -hmm. on that message board mm -hmm. i think it was on your myspace or it was on your personal message board um, mm -hmm. saying that you were selling out by doing that right <laughs> which is a name <laughs> i mean like if anything it's it's like to me the opposite it's almost the opposite if you're gonna criticize it it's the opposite because it's like taking diy and just like perverting it and making it the most ultimate DIY thing you could do because it had nothing to do with the record company and nothing to do with commercial success. All it had to do was the direct result of providing a product and providing art. That was literally what it was to someone who really wanted it. You know what I mean? Like to me, I was able to morally 
accept what I was doing, even though those songs are expensive, because I would pay that. Right now, if I could have Dave Grohl write a song for me for 150 bucks, I would pay it without any regret, without any thinking Dave Grohl would be a sellout for doing it. So the people who actually bought it and the people who are okay with it, it's like they know what's up. And the people who would call me a sellout for it, people are allowed to have their opinion. I just I, – I mean to me – from me, the guy who's actually doing it, if you're speculating on where my motives come from, they come from wanting to do something cool and wanting to be able to make money in an environment where the songs themselves are no longer even what's making you money as a musician. Selling a song to somebody has become the least amount of money that you make. It's all about selling t-shirts. It's all about selling spots in advertisements and movies. So I was like, how can I – my particular – so mp3 of a song be worth 150 bucks and that would be if i wrote it for each particular person and it, to me it makes sense and unfortunately what they're being attributed to, compared to is mm -hmm. you know when you go to the uh, you go to the hollywood um the celebrity conventions yeah and they all sit there at the table and they yeah. sell their autographs for 10 bucks a yeah. pop well you know what to be honest i don't even mind that comparison because i'm a comic book fan and um as a comic book fan they release like often they'll release like thousand run uh, hardcover editions of really cool comics and there's only a thousand of them and each one has a sketch from the artist in it or a gold-plated signed thing. I buy them. I love them because it's really cool to me to have a sketch by the artist of one of my favorite comic books. And I, to me, it's like – to me, if I started – if we started charging a lot more for our T-shirts or we stopped playing as good music in order to like become more commercially palatable, those are the things that are sellout moves. Whereas you know, trying to make money in a band, that's why I made that statement because I know I'm not going to do the first thing, but I will continue to do the second thing. I'm going to keep trying to make money. I'm going to keep trying to have Say Anything grow in popularity and commercial success. And if someone thinks that's selling out, I think it's inane and screw you already. You're already off the boat because that's what our goal has been from the beginning. We never wanted to be one kid's favorite band and have his friend not be able to listen to us because it's too cool. You know? I think the second part of that quote, I'm going to paraphrase it because I didn't write it down, but was that you had made a point. It was like the things that we want to do versus the things we would need to do to be successful. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between mm -hmm. the two. Mm -hmm. um, we'll take our second music break. I want to talk about Ooh. the new record a little bit, the future sure. of the music Sounds industry, great. and we'll wrap this up. Um, three of your songs out of your repertoire. Uh, song number one, the song that has been most misunderstood by fans. Uh, admit it. <laughs> Still. Yes. Yeah, because you've described what it's about several times. It is, but it's still – I've still seen enough of – it's just because the, most of our songs, I've never seen them get misunderstood. But um, but with Admit It, you know, people like to use it as a weapon of, of hatred sometimes towards people. <laughs> it's a WMD? Yeah, it's it's really? A, exactly. It's an SMD, Song <laughs> of Mass Destruction, that is used towards – because the truth is I – although I was inspired by certain – like I said, like the the pinnacle of hipster culture around right. turn of the century. Um, it's not about hipsters. It's not about seeing kids. It's not about anything. It's about uh, a pretentiousness and being a mean person. Like it's not. I'm not trying to classify an entire group of people and then and pin all my problems on them. I just wanted kids to be able to be okay with being neurotic and mm -hmm. and and to be able to react against the people who will beat down on you for being neurotic 
you know, the people who will, so, so that's probably the one that. Okay. The song that changed the most from when you walked into the studio mm -hmm. to when you finally got done recording it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> song that changed the most. I'm trying to think mentally the song that changed the most. Um, Oh, it's on our new record. Uh, this is like our next single probably. And this is like one of the songs that we're really most excited about. It's called Do Better. It's kind of like our first like feel good anthem. Mm -hmm. um, but, and it's, it started out being a completely derogatory song about myself that just like made fun of everything about me, how I dress, my weight, everything. And it uh, and it was just like a total song in the chorus is that you could do better, you could do better. Uh, you could be the greatest man in the world is the chorus of the song. And it was all about me and how I'm sort of falling short. But then I realized it had been done before and especially in the, it had been done before by Say Anything. And I didn't want to make a typical Say Anything record. And so it has the same sort of like, uh, self-consciousness and irony but it's it's written about certain other people in my life that because i think i finally got to the point where i was actually doing okay <laughs> you know mm. what i mean like i actually was doing all right and therefore i couldn't really i was it was a it was a gimmick to be making fun of myself in that way i felt like i was making admit it part two so it changed into a song about the world and about certain people who are close to me as opposed to uh as opposed to just being another make fun of myself, say anything song. Third one, I'm going to be unfair. Sure. Your favorite say anything song. <sighs> Gosh. Um, man, uh, it might be that song. Um, I'm trying to think of in the scheme of trying to be objective uh, and just look at everything we've ever done. And, um, you could try the desert island thing, you know, like you're stuck on an island. With, oh, if I was stuck on a desert island, it'd with be the, only one song of yours. It would be crushed off our new record. Um, but because it's like a, it's about my wife, it's like probably one of the most personal songs that I've written because it's like just a love song for my wife, which is like simple and truthful and it doesn't sure. carry a lot of the pretension that comes along with a lot of the ideas that I express. Um, so I'd say that one, Crushed, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with that one. Despite your pseudo-bohemian appearance and vaguely leftist doctrine of beliefs, you know nothing about art or sex that you couldn't read in any trendy New York underground fashion magazine. Prototypical nonconformist, you are a vacuous soldier of the thrift store Gestapo. You adhere to a set of standards and tastes that appear to be determined by an unseen panel of hipster judges. Bullshit! the thumbs up and thumbs down to incoming and outgoing trends and styles of music and art. Go Analog, baby, you're so postmodern. You're diving face forward into an antiquated past. It's disgusting, it's offensive. Don't stick your nose up in me. Yeah. Self-aggrandizing glory In which you hog the 
intellectual spotlight. Holding dominion over the entire shallow, pointless conversation. Oh, we're not worthy. When you walk by a group of quote-unquote normal people, you chuckle to yourself, patting yourself on the back as you stop. It's the same superiority complex shared by the high school jocks who made your life a living hell. And it makes you a slave to the competitive capitalist dogma you spend every moment of your waking life bitching about. Yeah.
An episode of Willing Grace Controversial yet mundane Deborah's messing with your brain Even Scientologists Know there's more to all of this Search the ruins for trapdoors Wonder what you're put here for Simple as a hint of gas Climbing nostrils as you pass Making Harvard graduates Feel childish when they laugh at it Climb the rungs to kingdom come Sour patch to acid tongue Are you opposed to Having fun, you clench the world between your buns. You could do better, you could do better. You could be the greatest man in the world. You could do better, you could do better. You could be the greatest man in the world. Your life is always the post of something else. Where is the present in the way that you present yourself? Disgusting how little that you try The existential equivalent of pink eye Drink alone and watch TV You're expecting harmonies To tap your tune with silver spoons Anthem of impending doom Guiding Satan's steady hand Forcing Beatles to disband It's ego freaks and drama queens The young at heart know what I mean You could do better you could be the greatest man in the world You could do better, you could do better You could be the greatest man in the world You could do better, better than that You're a fraud, thank God And learn to keep your shirt on You could do better, you could do better You could be the greatest man in the world Beside a princess bride And love was indivisible No 
never mind how my taste reflects a disturbing Oedipal complex. It's not awkward, girl. The compliments are coming next. You're no witch. You're no wench. You're like Bjork with better fashion sense. A phone 50 cents. And I'm building up my confidence. Respect to your work. You're an artist. I'm a silly jerk. I think that dynamic could work. So work it. No joke, I started shedding slutty girls Like snakeskin, my collection Acquired through shallow misdirection during when did the band like they got when you went away 
mm-hmm. to the hospital and you, and you, uh, it was a couple of weeks you were there. Um, and a number of the band members had left the group mm-hmm. and over the past couple of years, you got a new band together, you changed management terms. Um, and I was talking with somebody and th- even on the sound of the new record, it's like, uh, and even in some of the interviews you've already done, there's just a feeling that comes out of you and the work and just where you're, the whole band is um, mm. structurally mm-hmm. within, within its career right now. That's like, um, I think as you said, that um, we're going forward. Yeah. Like there's, it's all fresh. It's like you yeah. went in and you rehabbed a house and yeah. you have a whole brand new house right now. And yep. it's like, you feel cool. more Thank you. calm than probably ever before. Yeah, definitely. Calm and excited. You know what I mean? Uh, I think we knew it's weird. It's like, we're such analytical people that even when we were making in defense, you know, we're like, we're working with one of the coolest indie producers and we're making a really cerebral double record. We know what we're going to do on the next record. We know we're going for a bigger producer, funner, more poppy songs and and I even knew that's where I wanted to be in my life. When I was in the, you know, the pits of this terrible, you know, bipolar mania and a horrible, unhealthy relationship, I was like, I I had better hope that on my next record I'm making this big, triumphant, um glorious, you know, record that sounds big and queen-esque and and produced and and it's gonna be different. You know, it's gonna be and then when we got to it and these things like prophetically actually came true in my life where I'm, I met the love of my life. I'm like in this new adventure, you know, kind of like exploring the world again for the first time with, with clear eyes and a clear vision. It's what we all knew was going to happen. It was like unspoken. And then we started talking about it and got even more crazy. You know, we, just let's make this – you know, we don't want to say anything to be – unfortunately, there are many bands – that make a record earlier on in their career that people consider to be a landmark record, and then they kind of give up. Like, right. we can just continue to now make subpar music and maybe even get away with it. You know what I mean? Maybe the kids will think, oh, because they have some amount of credibility, we can stop trying now. I hate it. I'll, I'll tell you right now. I'm not going to name names, but it pisses me off. Um, you, you need to honor the kids who take the time to promote you for free to to love you, to take you into their hearts and actually let you speak to them. Mm-hmm. You need to honor them by continuing to grow and challenge them and challenge you and not just cut yourself off. It's like to me to me it's insulting. Um and uh I think uh I think that's what we felt this next record had to be was this larger than life you know, musically ambitious um, pop record. And um, I think even our fans, I, I saw, I don't, I, I try to avoid the message boards sometimes because it's like, I can get really hurt. Yeah. I'm a very sensitive guy. But from what I had seen, like people loved it. It's not like they were like discounting in defense. They were just like, I love in defense, but I, I really like as a real, real boy, I'd love to see them make something a little bit more concise. Right. So, you know, it made me feel good that, we continued to grow as a band. We headlined Warp Tour. Like by all means, our last record was a total success. Yet, you know, kids called me on it. They're like, "Dude, you can make something that's a little bit less, you know, self-indulgent. You can make something that's more concise. So let's see you do it." 
And I was like, all right, well, if you're giving me that amount of respect and honesty, I want to honor you guys. Um, and, and the critics and, and the, and the, right. li- the magazines that support us. So the ones that are left. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you got, it was the same thing. It's like people acknowledge the whole idea that in defense was dense and dark and, you know, a, a step away from Israel boy in that sense. And I just kind of wanted to honor how honest everyone has been with me by being like, okay, well, this is what I think you guys deserve. Is this rector say anything? One of the things I've admired about you, especially in your in your blog posts, is that you, from a media standpoint, as a musician, you just come right out and say it. Yeah. You just come right out and say it. You don't play around the bush. There's a lot of musicians that will do that. Oh, and yeah. you just come out and you said, hey, um, our record's going to be out in a couple of weeks. I know you guys are probably going to be able to hear it offline immediately, yeah. And but I'm going to make my case right now as to why, yeah. you know, by you buying it. My wife and I can have a house, and I right. can buy comic books, as you right. say. Yeah. So, um, you know, is is do you think that your fans, or let's not say your fans, yeah. music fans in general, understand what downloading the record but not buying anything in the back end mm-hmm. does to someone like you? You run a big label. I don't think they understand. You know, you know what I, I mean? I don't think they understand it, and let me tell you why. Um, We live in an age where indie bands are some of kids' favorite bands, and they continue to put out records. Often you'll see the pattern of bands, especially in the past 10 years, that get signed to bigger labels and then get dropped and just signed to a bigger indie label and <laughs> continue to put out records. So so kids are aware oh, – Whatever, you know, like whatever, you know, this, you know, blank band is still making records. I still like them or don't like them and they're still touring. So to kids, it's just like, okay. And then, and it's like, I'm broke too, dude. Like, like, what do you expect from me? Like, you want me to go buy something I can just literally get for free. You're still touring. You look all fine and fancy in your diesel jeans up there. So it's like, you know, you're, you know, but what they don't understand is that, So many factors of being in a band do have to do with your sound scan when it comes from it, – it, if you're on a major label, major labels can only afford to support so much. That's what they are. You know what I mean? I have no qualms or misunderstanding about what – I'm on Sony. You know, I'm on RCA Records, which is a part of Sony, and it's like – I'm not saying Sony would drop us if we sold less records. I'm just saying I'm sure it makes them feel better that we do sell a good amount of records, and I'm proud of that. I don't want to sell more for them because that's what the role of a major label is. I'm a very like left-thinking guy politically, and for me to not acknowledge what these corporations are – as since I'm such a part of it uh-huh. and for the people involved, like the people at the label, they're like, yeah, we want you to sell a million records. We want you to be bigger than Weezer or Fall Out Boy. Like we want that for say anything. And we are a part of wanting that. And we've always been like that in every, anytime I've ever spoken to kids who liked our band, I was like, we want to be a really big band and to not acknowledge that. And, and the sound scan being a part of that, the sound scan, uh, how much you sell literally, gives the money back to the label, which gives you tons of money to promote yourself, to make a music video. All these are hundreds of thousands. Tour support and everything else. Tour support. Just making the record is like half a million dollars sometimes or a million. Sometimes they pay a million dollars to a band to make a record or more. Um, And and 
And then the band's like, yeah, totally. I'm going to spend all of it, but then whatever, download our record. It's like, I had to realize that's dumb. Like this company just gave you a bunch of money to, 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 to make kids happy, to make yourself happy. And why not try to repay them with it? Why not try to, you know what I mean? It's like, why even be on a label? You could be DIY. You could be giving your music away. And if that, if you're in a financially comfortable enough place to do it, just do it. It's cool. But if you're going to be on a, a record label that that's like, and, and I feel bad hiding that from my fans. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a slippery slope because people generally don't like to hear bands talking about wanting to make money because they want them to be these martyrs who don't care about money. But in reality, it's like, I, I live a very humble, If I mean, I don't talk about how I live to my fans that much, but like, I live a pretty humble life. I live in like a small, moderately small, but nice house. Um, you know, I don't live extravagantly. I don't eat at fancy r- restaurants every night. You know, I have a comic book collection. That's the one, my vice that I spend money on sometimes. But but that's where I'm at. I live a comfortable, happy life that I'd love to continue. I don't desire to necessarily live in a mansion in frigging Malibu. I just want to be able to, in this frigging depression economy, support this relatively humble life with my wife and i and that's why i had to be honest with kids about it because it's like this is where i'm at this is what i'm doing this is what i'm trying to do let's focus on the music because i don't even want to get into this with you guys like i don't want to hear about it let's just talk about whether you like the music or not what you want to see from us at shows and, and let's blow this up together you love say anything we love being in say anything let's not even focus on the money aspect except for to say please support us because we we need the support. We need our fans' support financially. Like do, that's what. Do you, what about the music industry? The way it's changing. Yeah, got Spotify and Pandora and everything's going crazy. Everything's an iPhone app, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so forth, so on. And streaming music is now yeah. going to be. What excites you as an artist about where everything is going? Everything. I mean, really? Yeah, I love it. I love where we're at right now. I love uh, the internet. I love MySpace. I love Twitter. I I literally love. <sighs> Maybe I'm just going through the stage and if we weren't doing well and if I wasn't getting positive feedback from kids, <laughs> right. like, forget about it. But it's true. <laughs> I've seen haters talk shit on message boards. I'm not the first – you know, I'm not going to say that we haven't – but I love the seeing what kids have to say. I love the – if we were to be given – the only reason we haven't made like a friggin' Is a Real Boy musical is because like right now we're waiting to hopefully be the type of band that's – big enough to like do all kinds of crazy multimedia things and it becomes relevant and it's like we don't want it to just spend our time and money on something that would just kind of flash and then be gone you know and wouldn't affect that many people but we're working ourselves up to the point where it's like hopefully you know god willing will be the type of band that gives back to our fans by utilizing all these connections to them and all these ways and and hopefully our music is conducive to that. I think it is. It's just, you know, it's a very like humorous type of a music that and, and also cathartic. So it's like we can really go about it in many ways. You know, a video game. You know what I mean? Whatever. Mm-hmm. We I would love to do all that stuff. I want to do stuff that kids and I think are cool. Comic book. Comic book. I would love to. But it's but it was the same point. Like we started meeting with people about doing a say anything comic. And I was like after the meetings, I just like – even though they were exciting and people were stoked to, to do it, it was just more like, 
man, I would love to make a comic when it's just like, I, we don't have to, we're a growing band. You know what I mean? It's like, we still, we're still on the cusp right now and moving upwards, but, in, and like you said, forward, but it's like, I want the the freedom, the artistic freedom to do what I really want with all these things, whether it's like an iPhone app or a, you know, uh, t- taking Song Shop even further where we're doing like full albums for kids. Oh, Literally, I would, I've thought about it and I would do it. And it's like all, I really, we're a forward thinking band and I, I, I don't have much bad to say about the way things are. I'm really gracious. I mean, I hope that whoever's listening to this knows, you know, if you don't already that. I'm just super humbled by the fans of Say Anything and mm. and everyone who's ever supported us. Every time we receive a measure of support, it, it it doesn't make me feel like, of course. I'm just like, whoa, that is so cool. And it becomes like this zen thing, you know what I mean? Where I'm just like floating in this world of, of like a mixture of humility and graciousness for where for, for where we're at. Because honestly, anyone could do could do this. I mean, yeah, talent gets involved to some degree, but I think a lot of it is how how talent is fostered. Mm-hmm. I think there are kids out there who could kick my ass in songwriting and maybe they're say anything fans. So it's like kick my ass, like do it. You know what I mean? Like that happened with me and 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 you know, when Chris came to me and was like, "Dude, you're like Chris like idealizes me." Like I and and I'm like, "What are you talking about, dude? You're like my favorite band. No one could ever write better <laughs> than you. I think you're better than John Lennon." For God's sake. He's like, no. Like, and we can just go back and forth. And I, I hope that I experience that with the Say Anything fan where I'm t- looking at them and be like, how could you ever think I'm as good as you? Um, that's what I want. I want to foster kids to to think for themselves and to create really awesome stuff and to be proud of themselves. And that's – you know, this record revolves around wanting to imbue other people with that feeling. Well, this new record is called Say Anything. Yes. It's out November 3rd. Usually when a band that's been around as long as you guys have been and put out enough releases and they come out with a record and it's self-titled, usually means that the label is planning to, re, planning to introduce them to a new market. Yeah. Because it's a branding. Yes. It's like if you called it, yep. you know, Bob's Metro Cafe, then people are like, oh, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, but you're just calling it say anything. So yep. is that part of the reason why it's called self, it's self-titled that way? Yeah. I mean, like I said, we have a really good relationship with our label. So in a way, a lot of the decisions we made for the record were kind of forethought on our part. Mm. That was later just like verified by the label. Like we we were the ones who decided to call it say anything. But they're like, yes. Because, you know, we knew as soon as we started producing the record and how it was sounding, we're like, this is better than is a real boy. To us, we're like, this is the best thing we've ever done. It may be the best thing we do for a long time. This is the record we want kids who've never heard of Say Anything to pick up, not is a real boy. And so we're like self-titled. And it's it just on a deeper, like more spiritual and political level, it, it, it's, it encapsulates my beliefs that I will stand by till I die. Like this record literally has in it or over the course of what it's of the story that's told, because I'm not I'm not self righteous enough to say that every single song is like a statement of purpose anthem that's like the best thing in the world that should be like <laughs> you know we are the world or like you know give peace a chance, but it tells the story of someone getting to the place mentally 
that I hope defines what I want to project out to the world, what I, the kind of change I want to make in the world. They, uh, I have to say this before we wrap this up, uh, yeah. but because uh, I want the listeners to know that there's this yeah. limited edition, deluxe edition, eighty nine dollar. Once you, it sounds like a lot, especially right yeah. now. But when you hear everything that's in this deluxe edition, which is available on November third when the record yeah. comes out, you have in this box. There's a double vinyl gatefold LP, a thirty six by thirty six three D poster with three D glasses. Yep. 13-track CD and MP3 download, mm-hmm. exclusive 9-track demo CD, mm-hmm. T-shirt and badge, Hate Everyone lyric sheet, first 500 signed, guitar pick card, yeah. and an iron-on decal. Yeah. I feel like I'm subscribing to like a sci-fi club back yeah, in the 50s exactly. or something, you know? And it's then you like get, Captain you know, Dr. Astro. Yeah, Ms- yeah, right. Captain Astro's uh, Dakota oh. ring or something. You know, it's... Uh, this is incredible. Yeah, this is like like you asked earlier. Like this is the type of stuff that we. Um, I know it's a slightly expensive thing, but I it is worth it. And um, you know, uh, that's the type of thing that we want to do more in the future, even for cheaper. You know what I mean? It's like mm. we. I mean, I'm just invigorated to be honest at this point in my life, and and hopefully just with being a grown up. It's just how I am. I go through struggles. You know, I'm definitely not perfect. Life isn't perfect, but like doing stuff like this, you know, and and song shop, and uh, it's. I think it's just the beginning for, for for this band because you know we really do like to give back, and um, although sometimes it costs money, like I said, I don't feel bad about it because I mean this is to me. It's like it's the same reason I get. Um, like I love this thing. It's awesome. It looks so cool. I've seen it. I've I've opened it. I love the LP. It's so cool looking. Even the box. Like I would buy it from Saves a Day when I was a kid. You know what I mean? And, and um, I just uh, I'm the type of guy like I was saying who, when I'm at like an IHOP, I always say this as an example. Um, if someone was my waiter and they were cranky and mean and took a long time to deliver the food, I would get frustrated. I would think I deserve my pancake and like, a, like a, just a smile. And that's what I deserve for going to IHOP. So when people go to say anything for, you know, invigorating music and, you know, moral support, I look at it as a job in the sense of I can't slack because kids are paying me and uh like think about that it's like it's a hobby it's a it's an art form that i'm actually getting paid to do i'm so lucky so whether you're working at a you know whether you're an architect or you're working at ihop or whatever it is whatever you're getting paid to do there's no need to go into it with this whole whatever attitude like <laughs> i i'm suffering this is horrible that they're paying me to like to, to sing, like, give me a break. <laughs> These people who like, wow, wow, go, go do something else. If you don't like what you do, go do something else. And by producing stuff like this and doing song shop, I'm hopefully conveying to the people who get it that it's like, okay, clearly Max likes his job. He, he wants to keep doing cool stuff for us. He's not like, whatever, I'll come, I'll see you in three years when I make my next record. Peace. It's just <laughs> like, I've seen enough of it. I'm done. Five years ago, in September 2004, in issue AP 194, Trevor Kelly again, mm-hmm. you and he have a relationship with yes, our magazine. we do. Um, there's a quote you said, I can be very analytical about what the point of my life is. Mm. So as the last question, mm-hmm. 
where do you think now that you've you're going forward and you've been through all this stuff you think the point of your life is right now um i think the point of my life is to serve the greater good um and i can analyze that as much or little as you want me to but that's pretty much it to me i always tell myself being a nice guy um and affecting the world on small levels as well as these kind of larger than life levels that I'm very lucky to be involved in when you're, you know, singing to hundreds of thousands of kids, mm -hmm. it's like, whoa, that's humbling. That's amazing. And I've become very comfortable with that. But to be honest, it's a combination of that. And on a personal level, being a good guy, I mean, I'm a very spiritual metaphysical thinker. So I like to think of, you know, I refer to it as God, but if, even if you're not a, a religious thinker in any way, I refer to the, everything put together is almost like a giant organism and it has a soul, the universe, people, all the different dimensions within it, all evolve together. And if you're aware in any way of the greater good of that thing, that undescribable thing, uh, and you're doing something to further it along, like just helping some other person get through a day or 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 sit putting positivity out into it. To me, that's my job more than anything. And I'm glad that being in Say Anything is, is my functional – one of the most important functional parts of that. Um, but to be honest, it's like any conversation I have during the day is just as important as a part of that. And that's why I think it's what I want to communicate with this record and that's why I, I thought that. I want to communicate to kids that they are just as important as me when you look at things like that. People who often put their idols or, or singers up on a pedestal, it's like, no, you are equal to me in this job that I see as the most important job in the world, which is helping the evolution of humanity and the world and the universe as a consciousness that is one. You know what I mean? You are contributing to that just as much as your favorite songwriter or Gandhi, you know what I mean? Like you, <laughs> some kid is making a difference, you know, to another kid. If you stop and say hi and like make him feel good about his day and recognize his soul, that's just as important. So to me, that is the point of my life. And I think it's beautiful that you. you get to tour with your wife. Yeah. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's the most important part of my life and the most important part of that function as well. So thank you. No problem. And I there's about twenty some odd questions I didn't even touch. <laughs> so uh, a number of topics have been spared, including all the message board kids. Oh, okay, good. I'm we'll leave kidding. that for next time. Yeah, yeah, next time. <laughs> AP podcasts are recorded at Lava Room Recording Studio in Cleveland, Ohio, a New York City quality studio at Cleveland prices. Check out www.lavaroomrecording.com. For more information on Alternative Press Magazine, go to www.altpress.com. The podcast engineer is John Walsh. Post-production assistance from Rob Bertenzi. I'm Mike Shea, and this is all my fault. You can reach me directly at www.myspace.com slash Mike Shea AP. That's S-H-E-A like the stadium, AP.